New microphone. Good? If I can turn this one off and take it off. Okay. So, the Freedom app. The reason why it gets its name, Freedom, is because it frees you from your phone so that you are free to do more productive tasks. But when we think about restricting access to phones and entertainments and information, it might sound like that's not really freedom, right? It's restricting. In fact, if this were to be done in countries like China or North Korea or Iran, we would decry, activists would decry the lack of freedom for its citizens. They can't have free access to the world. They can't have free access to information. They can't have free access to do what they want to do on their device. But the Freedom app doesn't claim to restrict freedom, does it? It claims to promote freedom. When temptation to be distracted by our phones is eliminated, then we are free to be more efficient and productive with our time. Well, as we come to our text this morning, we need to be reminded of the freedom that the gospel brings to us. The gospel frees us. And Paul has been making this point in chapters 3 and 4 of the book of Galatians. The gospel has set us free from the bondage of sin, from the bondage of the law, from the bondage of evil spiritual powers that would exert influence in our lives to sin against the Lord. But what is that freedom really? Yes, we've been freed from sin, freed from the law, freed from evil spiritual powers, but what is that freedom really? Are we free to choose, or are we free to live as we choose? Have all restrictions been done away with? Are we free to pursue all that our minds and hearts conceive and desire? 
But Paul's going to address that for us in the passage that is in front of us today, Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. So if you happen, happen to have a copy of God's Word open in front of you, I would encourage you to follow along as I read for us this passage. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. As we consider this passage in greater detail this morning, I want to make three observations about the freedom that we receive in the gospel, the freedom that comes to us in the gospel. First, the gospel frees us to live by faith. We'll see that in verses 1 through 6. Second, the gospel frees us to obey the truth, which we'll see in verses 7 through 12. And third, the gospel frees us to love one another in verses 13 to 15. So let's consider the first point that Paul makes in verses 1 through 6. The gospel frees us to live by faith. Now, verse 1 is a transitional verse that bridges the two main, the second and third main sections of the letter of Galatians. It's kind of binding them together. In fact, in some translations of the Bible, of your Bible, English translations, verse 1 kind of is set apart as its own paragraph. That's because it's kind of difficult to know, does it go really with the end of chapter 4? Does it go more with the, end of, or the beginning of chapter 5? Really, it's a bridge that's connecting these two things together. It's sort of a, a fluid way of transitioning from one aspect or one idea that Paul is trying to get across to another. In verse 1, Paul is bringing to a conclusion the theological argument that he was making in chapters 3 and 4. And remember that one of the main things that Paul was saying in those chapters is that the human condition apart from Christ is to be considered an imprisonment or captivity or even slavery. Look back at chapter 3, verse 23. Paul says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. And then in chapter 4, verse 3, In the same way we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And then in verse 7, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And verse 8, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But Paul also explained to the Galatians that the gospel that he proclaimed and the gospel that they believed set them free from this slavery. Again, going back to chapter 3 in verse 13 and 14, Paul says that Christ redeemed us. He broke the chains of our slavery. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, 
so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And also in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So Paul here is summarizing what he has said previously in chapters 3 and 4 in the first part of chapter 5, verse 1, when he says that Christ has set us free. We can be assured that we are truly free because of what Christ has done for us in his atoning death on the cross and his triumphant resurrection from the dead. His gospel work has set us free. In fact, it's this ministry of liberation that was the purpose of his incarnation, his purpose in coming into the world, the purpose of his perfect life, and the purpose of his ministry, the purpose of his death, and even the purpose of his resurrection. Paul says it is for freedom, that is, for the purpose of freedom or for the sake of freedom that Christ has set us free. Jesus came to set us free so that we would be free indeed, so that we would know true freedom, that we would enjoy our freedom, and so that we would live in the fullness of this freedom. So the first line of verse 1 summarizes well the main point of the previous two chapters. The gospel announces our freedom as sons of God through the redemptive work of Christ. But then, even in that very verse, Paul immediately transitions to the main objective of chapters 5 and 6, this last section of the book of Galatians, when he says, Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. As sons of God liberated from our former slavery, we are to walk now in the freedom that Christ has secured for us. So in the latter part of verse 1 here, Paul is issuing a strong imperative in both positive and negative terms. He commands the Galatians first to stand firm. In other words, he says that we are to live in this realm of freedom and grace that, that God has called us to live in. And then he commands them in the second part of that verse to say that they are not to submit again to a yoke of slavery. In other words, he's saying here, don't turn back to your pre-gospel lives. Now that you've experienced God's full freedom and abundant grace, don't go back that way. Don't go back to what was insufficient. Don't go back to what was inferior. That way of life enslaves, it corrupts, it destroys. It nullifies God's good purposes of grace in your lives. And that's going to be Paul's main objective. We're getting a preview here into what chapter 5 and 6 of Galatians is all about. The so-called practical section or the application section of the letter. How should those who have been freed by the gospel now live? How does Paul encourage the Galatians to live? What does he want them to do now based upon what Christ has done for them in the gospel? And we'll explore that more as we work through this final portion of the letter. But the short and succinct answer that Paul makes right now is this. Live in this new freedom that the gospel has brought to you. The gospel has transformed them. The gospel has brought them to a new way of life. The gospel has enabled them to live in a way that truly pleases God. He has given us the freedom to do so. So with that in mind, with the fact that, that the gospel has set us free from our slavery, that we should now live in this new freedom, that we should not go back to our former way of slavery, Paul elaborates on what this true gospel freedom is and how we walk in it. In verses 2 through 6 of chapter 5, Paul's point is that believers are now free to live by faith. 
And he sets this freedom in contrast to the bondage that comes by performing works of the, works of the law or works of righteousness that seek to achieve a right standing before God. And again, we need to, to understand this well. We need to remember the context of the letter. The Galatians had responded in faith to Paul's proclamation of the gospel during his first missionary journey. But false teachers came in later that claimed that faith in Christ was important. It was a necessary first step on the path of justification. That what they needed to do now to be accepted by God was to do the works of the law. That they were to, to obey the commands of the Old Testament. And that by doing these works, the Galatians could attain self-righteousness. And they could justify themselves before God. But Paul deconstructs that argument throughout the letter, and particularly here so in verses 2 through 6. In these verses, Paul argues that works of the law do not bring freedom, but they instead enslave and imprison and hold captive. Again, that's the central argument of Galatians chapter 3. Paul is kind of summarizing these things here in a very practical way to the Galatians. And we surmise mainly from verses 2 through 6 that the main issue that the Galatian churches were dealing with was this issue of circumcision. These Judaizers had come in and demanded that the Galatians had, had, that they needed now to, to circumcise themselves after having believed in Jesus Christ. And that this circumcision would be an act of self-righteousness. And this was part of the process of justification. But Paul decries the necessity of, circ- of circumcision and places it in opposition to Christ. If you look at verse 2. Paul says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. So for the person who is circumcised in an attempt to justify himself before God, Christ is no advantage. Christ is no profit to that person. He helps them in no way at all. In fact, the word advantage here refers to the final judgment. Paul is thinking of the courtroom scene, thinking about how things will play out at the very end of time when we stand before Christ, we stand before God at His judgment seat. What we will do is we'll stand before Him and those who have sought to justify themselves will try to present their own works as the means of justifying themselves, of showing themselves to be righteous before God. But in that moment, Christ can be of no help to them. Christ can be of no advantage to them. Instead, the person who tries to stand before God by their self-righteousness, by their works of the law, will find quickly that their self-righteousness is no righteousness at all. It has no effect. He is condemned. And Christ can be no help to that person in that moment. And Paul gives us a reason for that in verse 3 when he says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. In other words, if a person is going to try to use circumcision as a way to earn favor with God, then he must obey the entire law. Again, Paul had already mentioned this back in chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. That if a person is going to seek to keep one aspect of the law, they better keep the whole thing. They've got to obey the entire code. But as Paul said, this is impossible. No one has ever been able to uphold every last minor detail of the law. All have fallen short. Because of our slavery, our wills are held captive to break the law every opportunity that we have. The law is a motivation to sin, not a restraint. And so to seek self-righteousness by the law is to cut oneself off from Christ and to remove oneself from the realm of grace. In fact, Paul says in verse 4, you are severed from Christ. You who, we, who, you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. 
And interestingly, this word severed is a word play on the word for circumcision. By circumcision, Paul is saying here, one does more than cut the body. He cuts himself off from Christ in a much more profound and eternal way. So if a person rejects the redemption that Christ provided in his death and resurrection, what other resource, what other help can we find? Where else can we turn? Without Christ, there is no hope. Without Christ, there is no grace. There is only works. And those works are doomed to destruction. In contrast to the bondage of works, Paul points us to the liberation that Christ brings to us now. And the life that we live by faith in Him. Look at verse 5. He says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Paul says now that the life we live is lived through the Holy Spirit who has come to us through the proclamation of the good news. Remember, it's the Holy Spirit that awakens us. It's the Holy Spirit that regenerates us. God promised us the Holy Spirit as the, as the promise of the new covenant. When he prophesied way back in the Old Testament, the prophets of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, he prophesied that his people would come under a new covenant. And part of that new covenant, an integral part of that new covenant, is that he would give them his spirit. He would give them a new heart. He would give them a new spirit. That's exactly what had happened to the Galatians. In chapter 3, Paul said that they had already believed in Christ. They believed the gospel by faith. And because they believed the gospel by faith, they had received the Holy Spirit. And the proof that they indeed believed the gospel by faith was that they received the Spirit. And the Spirit was working in them as evidence that they truly believed in Christ. And that's what happens in conversion. When we believe the gospel, we are born again. And we receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells us and abides with us and works in us to manifest God's purposes for us. And through the working of the Spirit at conversion, the gospel then sets us free. And as the Spirit continues to work in us, He helps us to live in this new freedom that the Gospel brings. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, that the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The Spirit's presence in us awakens us from the deadness of our natural condition. He opens our eyes to the blindness of our, of our sinful blindness so that we can see truth. The Spirit prompts in us faith to believe the good news of the gospel and so he sets us free from our captivity it's the spirit who does this regenerating work in our hearts it's the spirit who provides faith for us to believe the gospel and because we are justified by faith our hope is that on the last day the the time of the final judgment god will declare us righteous on the basis of what christ has done through his death and resurrection for us that's our hope Paul here is looking at our justification in terms of the the future impact of it. We have the assurance now that that will be the case because of what Christ has done. That on that last day, He will be our helper. He will be our advocate. He will present us to to God in His righteousness. And Paul says when he uses the word hope there, he means it more than just simply a wish. He means it as a bedrock confidence. This is a means of assurance for us. Because of what Christ has done, and because we have the seal of the Holy Spirit upon us through His work of regeneration, we trust that on that day, when we stand before God, God will declare us righteous. Not because we are, not because of anything that we have done, because of what Christ has done on our behalf. So in other words, faith alone justifies. 
We can only be justified by faith alone in Christ alone. But what Paul would say here is that the faith that justifies is never alone. Faith unites us to Christ so that we are justified before God bearing his righteousness. But faith also works out that righteousness in our lives even now. It is the gospel that liberates us not only to have faith, but to live by faith and to walk by faith. Notice what Paul says in verse 6. He says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. In other words, circumcision, uncircumcision, it's immaterial for the Christian life. What truly matters is that faith is active and that it works in such a way so that it produces love. In this sense, then, faith is not merely a one-time belief. There's a, there's a great emphasis in other denominations, in other, among other Christian churches that would say, you know what, faith alone is a one-time thing. And certainly, we are, when we come to the point of faith in Christ, that we are saved and truly saved. But there are some who would say, look, you just make a profession of faith and that's it. No matter how you live your life, it, you can live the way you want to live. But Paul is arguing here that faith is not merely a one-time belief, but it's an ongoing thing. It's an ongoing trusting, a continuing trust. And as we continue to trust Christ every day, moment by moment, the Spirit is at work in us to produce fruit. The essence of that fruit, Paul says in verse 6, is love. And so it's the gospel that frees us to walk in this faith. And so it's crucially important to understand the interplay of faith and freedom. By faith, we are free from our former slavery. We're free from trying to make ourselves righteous before God. We're free from trying to clean ourselves up. We're free from trying to have to accumulate a massive load of good works. We're free from having to obey the law perfectly. But also by faith, we are free to live in the way that pleases God. We are free to walk in the righteousness of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're not a Christian, I just want to address you for a moment. I would ask you once again, it's a question we've been asking throughout this study of Galatians. And that is, how will you make yourself right before God? How will you present yourself on the day of judgment before God? Will you try to do enough good works to try to show God that you are righteous enough for Him to accept you? Here's the Here's the bad news. You can't. There are not enough good works that you could accumulate to make yourself righteous before God. Even one act of disobedience is enough to bring about the judgment of God. The reality of the fact is that we don't really do good works. Even the good works we think we do are tainted. All of our works, the Bible says, are as filthy rags before the Lord. You cannot make yourself presentable before God by your works. But here's the good news. God has offered you the righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ. That is the reason why He was born. That is the reason why He went to the cross. He paid the penalty for our sins and He offers us His righteousness so that on the last day, God will declare you righteous before Him. And so forsake your efforts of self-righteousness Forsake trying to do all those good works. Forsake trying to accumulate enough works to make yourself presentable to God. Instead, repent of your sins and turn to Christ by faith in what He has done. And brothers and sisters, having been justified by faith, we are now free to live according to this faith by the power of the Spirit. 
Our freedom is not a license to sin, but it is a grace from God to walk in the way of Christ, to walk according to his righteousness. And Paul continues on with that thought in verses 7 through 12. So let's transition there. The gospel frees us not only to live by faith, the gospel also frees us to obey the truth. The gospel frees us to obey the truth. Again, apart from the gospel, we are powerless to obey the truth. Remember that Paul says in chapter 3, verse 19, that the law actually increased transgressions. In other words, the law did not help us to live righteously before God. It did just the opposite. It promoted unrighteousness in us. Now, to direct you back to that sermon to talk more about that is the full reason why. But the simple reason is, is that we cannot, we cannot in our sin nature obey God. Instead, what we do is we see the authority of the law. We see God's authority in the law, and we say, you know what? I want to rebel against that, this natural rebellious spirit that exists in all human beings. So in our pre-gospel lives, we were beholden to our sin. The, God, the law could not set us free. We were unable to obey the holy God who created us and set righteous demands upon our lives. But when we believed the gospel, it set us free. It liberated us so that our bondage was broken. And now we serve a new master, and we obey him. We can see why Paul was so frustrated with the Galatians. He had preached the gospel to them. And by all indications, they had been changed by the gospel. But now he sees them submitting to circumcision and pursuing the other works of the law. He says, now wait a minute. Hold on here. You're reverting back to your former slavery. You're not walking in this righteousness. You're not walking in your sanctification. You're going back to what you were before you believed in Christ. In fact, Paul describes their abrupt change here in the use of an athletic metaphor in verse 7. He says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Like a runner who quickly moves to the front of the pack, the Galatians had started well. They got off to a prompt start. They held good footing. They accelerated to achieve a pace that set them on the course to victory. But now they had been tripped up. It's as, as if the language that Paul uses here, the, the, the metaphor, the picture of it is that someone jumps from the stands onto the track and trips up the runner. Someone had tripped them up. And so Paul is pointing to these false teachers who had cut in on the Galatians and tripped them up. But the Judaizers were not the only ones who were solely culpable. Though they were responsible in some way for hindering the Galatians, the Galatians refused to get up and get back on the track and, and reestablish themselves on that race. They didn't, they, didn't call, they, didn't, they didn't get up and run once again. They stayed on the track and wallowed there, in, incapacitated, enslaved in this former slavery. They had been persuaded by the Judaizers' lies, lies. Like a little yeast in the dough, the lies had quickly proliferated to permeate in the church. And so the church was thoroughly corrupted by them. And rather than excise this heretical cancer, the Galatians continued to submit themselves to the authority and teaching of the Judaizers. And in doing so, they were being enslaved all over once again. Paul is calling them back to the gospel so that they might be free to obey the truth. In fact, Paul expects that they will repent and that they will return to the truth of the gospel. In verse 10, he says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. And Paul had previously expressed the belief that the Galatians were genuinely converted. He believed that their faith was truly sincere, that the Spirit was indeed at work in them. But they had gotten off track. So Paul is writing this letter to 
to remind them of the truth. And he's praying and trusting that when they read this letter, they will be convicted of the truth. And they'll return back to their former faith. Hopefully they will see the Judaizers for what they really are, which are false teachers. And they will reject their teaching. Paul makes clear that contrary to what they say about themselves, they are under a judgment for proclaiming a different gospel. The Judaizers are under the judgment of proclaiming a different gospel, a gospel of justification by works of the law. In fact, Paul, even here in a satirical way, I don't know if it's humorous, but definitely a satirical way, Paul is hoping that God's judgment might come upon them early. That in demanding circumcision, he says in verse 12, the knife might slip, that they might emasculate themselves. In verses 7 through 12, and particularly in verse 7, Paul here is, again, encouraging them to obey the truth. The gospel is calling them, it's freed them to obey the truth. And it might seem on just a cursory reading that Paul is contradicting himself, right? He's been going on, making this long argument in chapters 3 and 4 that justification cannot come by obeying the law because anyone who seeks justification by the law must obey all the law in its entirety. And that if they do that, if they try to obey the law in entirety, they will fail. And because of their failure, they will be brought to God's judgment. No one can do God's law perfectly. No one can obey God's law perfectly. So why is Paul here saying in verse 7 that the Galatians must obey the truth? Again, remember the context of the letter. Up to this point, Paul has argued that the Judaizers were demanding obedience to the law as a means of justification before God. In other words, they were doing this as a way of making themselves acceptable to God. But obedience to the law cannot justify one before God. Again, only faith in Christ. Only faith alone in Christ alone, on the basis of his redemptive work on the cross, can justify us before God. But here's the point to understand it as we transition to this part of the letter. The gospel does not dismiss the importance of works. Paul argues in the latter two chapters of Galatians that though works are not the foundation for our justification, they are the fruit of our justification. The gospel frees us to obey God. The gospel frees us to obey God's word. Obedience is the fruit of our faith, not the root of our faith. That brings us then to our final observation, which Paul expands on in verses 13 to 15. The gospel frees us to love one another. The gospel frees us to love one another. Again, the gospel frees us from the bondage of sin and the law and demonic power. But the gospel freedom does not give us free reign to live as we want to live. This is not a freedom to live licentiously, right? It does not a license to sin. Freedom does not mean that I am the master of my fate and I determine how I want to live my life. It does not mean that I'm the captain of my own soul. Freedom does not mean that we step up to a smorgasbord of choices and choose whatever our hearts delight in. In fact, Paul addresses this as well in the book of Romans, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? If you know the context of Romans, you know the previous verse says that we're, we're sin abounded. Grace abounded much more. Praise the Lord for that. We have this, the, the hymn, right? Grace greater than our, than our sin. Where our sin was great, God's grace was even greater. Praise the Lord for that. But Paul understands that people might misunderstand that or abuse that line of thought when he says, well, does this mean that I can go and sin as much as I want so I can get more grace? And Paul says, by no means. In fact, it's a very emphatic way of saying no in the Greek language. By no means. 
how can we who die to sin still live in it? In verse 13 of Galatians 5, Paul cautions the Galatians. He says, For you were called to freedom, freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now, when Paul uses the word flesh here, he's referring to our fallen human nature, what we once were in Adam. The flesh is the center of human pride and self-will. The flesh is our disposition, gives us a disposition towards sin. The flesh is, is the arena of indulgence and self-assertion, rebelliousness, to do whatever I want to do. The flesh seeks to live from the center of oneself rather than from the center of God's authority. But Paul says we must not use our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. The word opportunity there refers to a springboard or to a launching pad or to a base of operations. It's a, in the Greek context, the Greek, uh, it's a word picture, it's a military context. It's a place from which a battle is planned and launched. We ought not to see, Paul is saying here, our freedom in Christ as a launching pad into sin. It's not an opportunity for us to go and to live whatever way we want to live. Our freedom should not be the springboard that thrusts us into sin. We're not to use our freedom as an entryway into sinful deeds. Because to do so will thrust us right back into the slavery that we once were under. And the freedom that we have will be forsaken. So instead of a license to sin, our Christian liberty leads us, frees us, to love. So verse 13 and 14, Paul says, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but what? What's the contrast? How are we to use our freedom? But through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul is quoting there from Leviticus 19.18, which is familiar to us because Jesus also quoted it as one of the greatest commandments. But it seems very ironic here that Paul would quote the law and say that we need to obey this, Right? You realize that Paul here, is, he's been going and making this argument, you know, there's no need to obey the works of the law, no need to do the works of the law. And now he brings the law in and says, you shall obey this law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law is fulfilled in one word, he says. The whole law is fulfilled in one law. Paul says that by keeping one commandment, then we can fulfill the entire law of God. And that's ironic because it seems that Paul is contradicting everything else he said in, in the letter up to this point. But the distinction here is one of motivation. We cannot keep the law in our sinful nature because we are powerless to keep it. You cannot love apart from the regenerating work of Christ in your heart. This culture that says love is love and all about love and this and that about love, that's great. The problem is they can't love. They cannot love because they don't know what true love is. We have been freed to love. We cannot obey the command to love when our hearts are sinful, when our hearts are antagonistic towards God. We have no power within us to be able to love the right and proper way. But if we are justified by faith, and if we have received God's Spirit in the new birth, then the Spirit enables us to live within the essence of the law. And that is love for God and love for others just as Jesus noted when asked about the greatest commandment, right? All the law can be summarized in those two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you obey those two laws, you are essentially walking in line with all that God revealed in his law. That summarizes all the laws 
that God gave. The essence of the law, then, is love. And Paul emphasizes here that the Holy Spirit enables us to love others, and in doing so, we keep, that part, we keep, we keep the law as part of our sanctification, not as a means of justification. That's the key difference. We don't obey the law in order to make ourselves righteous before God, but we obey the law. We, we, we fulfill the law of righteousness. We, we, are, we love our neighbor as ourselves. We love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength as the fruit of the change that's been made in our life by the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. So even though we've been freed from the law, the law still has a purpose. When we understand that the entire law functions to promote love, love of God and love of neighbor, then we are free to walk in obedience to that law, not for justification, but as the expression, the self-expression of true righteousness. If we have been justified by faith, if Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us, then to obey this law is the self-expression of that righteousness which has been given to us. Again, we go back to verse 6. Paul says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So Paul's saying here again, be circumcised, don't be circumcised. It's immaterial. That's not the point. What matters is faith in Christ. Because it's faith in Christ that causes us to walk in love toward one another. And then in verse 13, Paul defines even further for us what it means to love. True love is expressed when we are serving one another. Right? When he says, do not use your, your, do not, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one, one another. That is how we love. That's the definition of love. It's serving. In fact, I think that word serve, the word serve there is an interesting word. Because what has Paul been talking about up to this point? The gospel has freed you from servitude. The gospel has freed you from slavery. You're no longer a slave, but a son. But now, what have we been called to do? We've been called to serve. We've been called to go to a different kind of slavery. Christian freedom makes us slaves of a different sort. Not slavery in a bad way, like slavery to sin or the law or demonic power, but slavery to the one who is Lord over all. And because we are bound to Christ, we are bound also now to his people. In the body of Christ, we are all children of God. That makes us all members of one family. So true freedom is a freedom that releases us to serve one another in love. Love and service go together. Because love is, the, is not self-gratification rooted, rooted in selfishness, but it's an orientation toward others rooted in selflessness, right? Just like the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ's sacrifice on the cross is the supreme demonstration of what love is. Why? Because he laid down his life for us. He thought nothing of himself and thought of the redemption that he would bring to us. He thought of others instead of thinking of himself. He laid down his life in humility for us. For us, apart from the gospel, we ourselves are incapable of loving others the way that God loves us. We're incapable of loving others the way that God loves them. We are incapable of loving at all because we don't know true love. But because of the gospel, we are now free to love with God's kind of love. And loving others in this way is 
truly liberating. We are living out the purpose that God has destined for us in the gospel when we love one another and serve one another. Well, if you look at your own life, do you see this kind of love at play? Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you love your fellow church members? And how would you say that you're loving them? One supreme way that we could do that is to say, how am I serving them? How are you serving your brothers and sisters in Christ? How are you fulfilling this aspect of what Paul talks about in verse 13? How are you fulfilling the whole law in this one word? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I think this is probably one of the greatest challenges that we face as 21st century Christians, especially living in America. We would say that we, I think we would all say that we love one another, right? If I were to question you after church, do you love, you love your brothers? Yeah, oh yeah, of course. I love my brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't think anybody would deny that. But can we say that we are truly serving one another? How are we serving one another? The reason why that's such a great challenge for us, a significant challenge for us, is because we live in a culture, we live in a world that is very individualistic. We live in a world that's very fast-paced. We live in a world that's very self-centered. And I'm, I mean, I'm talking to y'all, but I'm talking to myself even more, right? These things apply to me just even more than they probably apply to you. Being individualistic, being living in a fast-paced world, living in a self-centered culture, I tend to gravitate and concerned about myself and maybe those who are closest to me. We're concerned with preserving our time and our resources rather than serving the needs of others. We can look at our schedules. We can look at our bank ledgers. How do they reflect a commitment to serving others? Service, brothers and sisters, is the essence of love. And again, look at the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at how he laid down his life for us. Look how he was the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. The gospel sets us free to love as Christ loved. The gospel sets us free to serve one another. As many of you know, my mom immigrated, my mom's family immigrated to the United States from Cuba back in the 1970s. And one of the things that really strikes me from that culture, it's a little very different from American culture, um, it always has struck to me how much they have valued and loved the freedom of living in the United States. Uh, they witnessed firsthand Castro's destructive communist revolution. They lived under the virtual slavery of socialism. Life in the United States provided for them political, economic, and social opportunities far beyond what they could have ever experienced in Cuba. And in the last decade or so, as our culture has become really more um, uh, thinking more positively about socialism, they've romanticized socialism as a utopian way of life. My family has really kind of rustled up against that, and in particular one of my uncles, who's become quite vocal, almost to the point of being obnoxious, but he's become quite vocal about the dangers of socialism and the beauty of American freedom. He has repeatedly decried the political corruption, the economic depravity, and the social constraints that he experienced once in Cuba. In his mind, having experienced freedom in America, why would he ever go back to that kind of life that he once had in Cuba? For him, it was an an oppressive way of life. It was an inferior way of life. 
It was a way of life that was destructive, harmful. I think there's something we could say even to a greater extent about what Paul is saying in Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. Look at what we've been delivered from, brothers and sisters. Look at the freedom that we've now been given. God has shown to us tremendous grace. What great opportunity exists for us in the gospel. What great responsibility exists for us in the gospel because of our freedom in Christ. We have been set free. Don't return to your former bondage, but walk in this new freedom. May God give us the grace to use our freedom as an opportunity to obey the truth, to walk in love, and to serve one another. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for the gospel. We are so thankful for the freedom that it provides to us. Thank you, Lord, for rescuing us from sin. Thank you, Lord, for breaking us free from the evil clutches of demonic power. Thank you, Lord, for rescuing us from your wrath, from eternity in hell. Lord, I pray that we would treasure that, Lord, that we would be enthralled even more once again with the gospel, Lord, because of what you have done for us. But even more, Father, I pray that we would not use our freedom as an opportunity for sin. May we never, Lord. May we never go back that way. May we never seek out that slavery. May we never take our freedom as an opportunity or as a license to sin. But may it give us, Lord, the opportunity to serve one another, to love as you love us. I pray, Lord, you give us the grace to think through, Lord, how we can love our brothers and sisters in Christ, how we can serve them, how we can encourage them and build them up, how we can link arms with them to keep on this journey of sanctification that we're on all the way into the very end. I pray, Lord, that this place, this church, would be a place where true love proliferates. I pray, Lord, this would be a place where we would seek to serve one another and so fulfill the law of Christ. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your word. May you use it, Lord, in our hearts to accomplish your purposes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.